Welcome to another episode of Drinking Iced Tea with Derek Tam Hyphen Scott. It's Mine. not iced, but okay, it's drinking tepid. Sweetened, unsweetened green tea. Um, I am Jason Kamisa, and this is episode 100 of the Carmudgeon Show. Part of the Haggerty Podcast Network. In this episode, we accidentally discuss Bugatti, all based on a rumor that was supposed to just start the episode, but ended up hijacking the whole episode. But we do talk about Bugatti and its miscellaneous incarnations, including the current one. Which involves Rimats, the one that I would say Otherwise is known now, as Rimac. Uh, yes. For the unwashed. Uh, f- the, for the ones who don't speak uh, Croatian. Rimats. Yeah. Uh, and then the uh, outgoing episode would be the VW era. Uh, sorry, outgoing phase of Bugatti's history, which yeah. is the, Buga- the uh, VW era. Uh, and then uh, f- chapter two, which would be uh, the Italian chapter, yep. Romano Artioli, EV110. And then the original Ettore Bugatti uh, Era. Chapter one. Yeah. Um, so it's, we are discussing what Bugatti should be, what Bugatti is, and how it relates to Pagani and Rimats and all these other things. Uh, don't forget that if you're a fan of this stuff, you can support us or Haggerty by uh, joining Haggerty Drivers Club, which gives you roadside assistance for all your classic cars, uh, discounts on cool stuff, and a magazine. There's a link below. If you want to click on it, go for it. If you want to get an insurance policy, just do that. Yeah, that's you know. the... The place where it makes a big difference when you have to have an insurance claim, which we hope not to do, but sometimes happens. Shit happens. Brought to you by, yeah, that should be, I mean, that really should be Haggerty's slogan. Shit happens. Go fucking drive your car, because shit happens. Anyway. All right. Carburetor Show. Ready, set, go. Welcome back. From the Carbudgeon Show bumper. Oh, yes. Where and the was, theme song. Yeah. Thanks for that. You're welcome. Uh, Not outer space. Um, so, I feel like I should have started this episode with a song because there's a f- phrase that I want to say that's a song, and let's see if you know the song. It's, I heard a rumor. Oh, yes, I don't know it. You don't know that? No. I heard a rumor. Anyway, um, so I, I, I sort of read something disturbing that Achim Anscheid, I think was his name, was the uh, former tech director and designer at Bugatti, who's just retired and confirmed on his way out the door that the replacement for the Chiron will no longer have a W16 engine. Was that like a spite, like I'm piecing out, or was it like this is my last thing as professional, like official duty is to report this or i did meet him once i probably have his number and could ask him but i think he'd probably say no comment um no but he retired um and the official statement was that he waited until the next generation car had uh been fully gelled and they decided a bunch of things and then he was able to pass the torch on um that's the official story. The I suspect the real story is probably a little bit different. If you re, if you remember that Rimats and Bugatti are now the same company, mm-hmm. uh, sort of spun off by Porsche, um, and I'm sure there are a lot of changes there that um, you know whether it's for the better or not, we'll find out. Uh, but a lot of changes that'll make uh, that make. I do trust life. Rimats. I trust them to make a powertrain, for sure. Um, and that car was fucking great. That Navara was really really good. But does Ramatz know what is best for Bugatti? I don't. I think those are very different um, markets. I don't know. Yeah. Um, to be honest, I don't think Bugatti knows what's right for Bugatti. I think the Chiron was uh, is great, but they should be pioneering um, change rather than reacting. And so, what do you envision that meaning? 
I think given the amount of speed <clears throat> that uh, electric cars can attain, I think they probably should have been an early electron, uh, electric adopter. I mean, like the, the, one, the biggest mis opportunity in, missed opportunity in the business is Rolls-Royce. Rolls-Royce, that Phantom should have been 100% electric. Rolls-Royces are not used for long distance distances typically they're used for to shuttle someone to the theater and there's nothing more uh wafty than an electric motor mm -hmm. um and having just drove a cullinan wow that v12 is wonderful but you know who cares um that should have been electric um so rolls should have been electric i think bugatti probably should have been electric or some sort of electrified therefore redundant with remotes well, I thought that was what was going to happen when Bugatti was handed, when, when Rimots was handed the keys to the Bugatti castle, right? The idea there is that this is the future. Rimots is, is sort of pioneering the future of what's coming for, next for fast cars, and therefore they should be in charge of Rimots. But the rumor that I heard Bugatti. was... Bugatti. Oh, sorry. What did I say? Rimots. Where am I? Who are you? Uh, this is the Carmudgeon Show. Oh my God. No way. Hello. Are you hyphen? <laughs> I am. You're on the Carmudgeon Show. You are the Carmudgeon I, Show. The I call the is coming from inside the house. I know what you did last summer. Um, <clears throat> here's the thing. So that the interview with Ahim basically said the next generation Chiron car will, the Chiron replacement will have a V8 with a hybrid system in it. Mm. I have a big fucking problem with that. Uh, do you think they should be full electric instead or do you think they should be full W16? <sighs> they should be W16 plus hybrid. I just sort of think that, uh, here's my worry. This is going to be that same fucking Audi 4 liter that's in everything. Ah, uh, yes, the Porsche, Audi, Lamborghini. It's not even the Porsche motor. There was a Porsche V8, and now that's been retired in favor of the Audi V8. And there's nothing wrong with that V8. No, I mean, it's used yes. in the Porsche. Right, but this is a fucking off-the-shelf V8 that's in everything from a Volkswagen to a Skoda to, I'm sure, a Skoda and, and say I'd have their version of it. V8s? Yeah, to Bentley's, to whatever. And the Bugatti had its own bespoke W16. Mm -hmm. I don't think Bugatti should share anything with anyone, period. And at that Except price for point, mirror motors. Even that. <laughs> I'm sure they can engineer a mirror motor that's quieter and quicker. You know, just like sort of servo-operated. <laughs> that's um, very Bugatti. Instead of, you know, mirror motors sound like shit. I have a problem. Electrified, yes, sure. Do whatever the fuck you need to do to make it fast. A V8? Can you imagine if the next Bugatti sounds like all of the Audis with that flatulent V8? Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. I mean, what would be the way to do? They should have just kept a W16 or developed a new W16 and then added a hybrid system on top. Here's the fucked up if thing. If you believe that Bugatti should be petrol powered at all. Yes. But I think whatever whatever propels the car, I think it should be all be bespoke. It should be exclusive to that car. Mm -hmm. And you do know that that W16 was new for the Chiron. Mm -hmm. Like that was not the same 16 cylinder that was in the Veyron. They have, or is it just the W12 that was new? Because the 12 is new and that's being retired also. So the W12 Which is being retired. W12, the Bentley one? The Bentley one was given what the fuck did they do on this last one? Oh, direct injection. They did direct injection on this latest version and they made a bunch of changes to that car that really smoothed that engine out. So the that you would think a VR6, one of the best sounding engines of all time, times two would make for the, one of the best sounding and smooth and wonderful W12s, but it didn't. 12 was boomy and it was harsh um, and they fixed all of that with the last version that debuted in the Bentega. That was an all new 12. 
I'm pretty sure the 16 got all the same stuff, got direct injection and was all based on the same stuff. So this is an engine that lasted for one car. Okay, being a larger revision of an engine that lasted for another car. Why are they throwing it out? And I know they're throwing it out. The VA can, can probably make a thousand horsepower. <clears throat> Doesn't matter. Right. Doesn't matter. If that were the case, you know, a I mean, Ferrari also would have a 1500 horsepower. horsepower now in a Bugatti. Yeah. But so, but, but is it about horsepower or is it about something exclusive and special and different? Yes. You know, I guess Bugatti did historically make four cylinders. Yeah. And straight eights. And straight eights, but never a V8. No, I just think that's not the right. I agree. I mean, but what is Bugatti? I mean, this is the fundamental question which Monte Rimans must answer right now. If it is a belief that it should be internal combustion, it should be the last. I mean, if you want to try and differentiate Rimans and Bugatti, if they're they're not competing with each other, then they have to develop their own identities. Rimans is their branded cars their identity is very clearly Mm high-tech it's modern it's cutting edge it owes nothing to nobody in the past ever at any point you know it's totally clean sheet totally future looking bugatti is kind of the opposite and so in some sense when those companies are tied up i saw you know what seems logical right you have this really storied legacy prestige company that whose golden era is the 19. 30s probably Mm. Uh, and there's all of this history that you can draw on and you can really make this art object objet d'art which is what that those cars you know do a pretty good job of doing especially Mm. the chiron more so than the veyron which was i think a little austere by comparison uh but in terms of like detailing and luxuriousness right you get in a chiron and you're just everything is beautiful and the way that the little arky thing is and it's just you know it's it's not quite pagani but it's a lot more sort of beautiful and i think it's pagani plus taste yes which means pagani plus restraint actually yes yes i agree i mean the veyron was the veyron the problem with the veyron problem right the problem with the veyron was when you started looking at details the car becomes far more beautiful than it otherwise is right every bolt everything everything was meticulously crafted and beautiful uh the chiron you don't have to go looking it's immediately apparent that it's really special i agree with that Um, Uh, and so you know, before you get to a powertrain discussion, a Bugatti should absolutely be just gorgeous to look at. And that can happen if it has a V8, I suppose. Uh, but there, the technical content of a Bugatti historically has also been really out there, too. I mean, like you look at the outside of a pre-war Bugatti's engine and it's, you know, all machined gorgeous. and engraved and all this stuff. I mean, it's it should have the same level of technical innovation. And so obviously, Remounts, if you're going to hybridize it, can provide that. They've already done that for Koenigsegg. Uh, but yeah, I think the internal combustion engine part of it, if it's going to have one of those, needs to be the centerpiece and it needs to be this, you know, equally jewelry-ish device. So yes, the W16 certainly did that. If you needed to downsize to eight cylinders, I guess it should be a W8. That makes no sense because there are no W8s kicking around anymore. Well, there but it should be something interesting. I mean, the, the the W engine debuted with a W8. Yes. Let's not forget. But yes. that's W8 doesn't really work because it's a 72 degree bank angle with two 15 degree VR fours that uh and it, one i think it needed three balance shafts if i remember Brilliant. Correctly. yeah no fucked up it um, should be something wacky though. it should be it something be the corporate v8 that's shared right. with every sh- soccer mom schmuck yeah. in a cayenne it, that v8 makes the power it really makes great power but it doesn't make the right noise and i really really hope that uh it's not the same like could you imagine it's the same shit casting that uh, you know i shouldn't say shit casting <laughs> but like this is fucking bugatti we're talking yes about. yes Yes. Um, shit for Bugatti, fine for everybody else. 
Yeah, we're wonderful for everyone else. I mean, yes. um, but I just, when I hear these kind of things, it's the same thing as a C63 AMG, which I have not yet driven, but that's a four-cylinder. Yeah. It just fails the concern about, yeah, the concern about losing their way, about who are the people who buy these cars, right? right. The person who buys the C63 is the person who's like, you know, I don't want this sort of namby-pamby six-cylinder nonsense of the BMWs, yeah. you know, horsepower and all that notwithstanding. You want something that's going to be a little bit thunderous and... You know, the noise of the modern Bugattis with the W16s has been a defining characteristic. It's just weird. It's different. It's like every time you describe the sound that you get out of one of those 16s, you're always defining it in terms of other things because you don't have the vocabulary, neither does any of the listening public, to understand what a 16-cylinder engine should sound like. It's like... Uh, it's true. I don't know. It's like nothing. You have to compare it to other things. Uh, and that's part of the mystique I, I, of But I want, you to, I want you to do that. Um, it's like a V8 and an inline eight combined. I mean, Nobody knows what an inline eight sounds like. Two flatulent four cylinders arguing. No, inline eights don't sound like that. The only inline eights I've ever driven, well, well was a Bugatti. It was a 1933 uh, Bugatti GP car. Mm -hmm. And it was flatulent and angry. And You must listen to the Alpha. The Alpha to me... Or, I mean, people do this with Buick straight eights also, but they sound great. To me, it's like, um, it's clearly eight cylinders, but it has, instead of having this sort of raggedness of a cross-plane V8 or the four-cylinderness of a flat-plane V8, it has the music of an inline six. six. Yeah, It's the music of an inline six plus eight obviously eight cylinders it's it's really special this i think the it's the best sounding car engine layout that really exists. inline eight i mean this is the point uh, at which the car margin show should pause and you and i should go listen to videos but we're not going to do that so we're going to have to discuss it in terms that of, in words yes um, gross uh so all of this to say that the, the the one of the defining characteristics of modern bugattis has been the engine yeah. and so to 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 put in the corporate V8. And of course, this is all car spe speculation anyway. Yeah, we don't know what no V8. Idea. You know, no Maybe idea. they'll come up with some amazing magical V8 that has nothing to do with anything else. But still, by virtue of it being a V8, it's slightly pedestrian and slightly sort of poor. <laughs> you know who never would have stood for this? Who? Uh, we can't say his name because then people will be like, is this the episode? Um, One of Ferdinand Porsche's grandchildren. Um, would never have stood his name was also ferdinand we'll call him ferdinand fieck ferdinand fieck okay so ferdinand fieck who was the instigator for the bugatti veyron yes would have never allowed i i think you're right i think that's a really great point fieck sorry i've, I've said his name that's would fine. have never allowed a, an eight-cylinder car now to no. do so is to completely just shit on the legacy that is supposed to be bugatti right is it, it? To, for, okay. for Piek, from Piek's perspective. Well, to do something other than amazing. Piek peaked, and his influence on the automotive industry peaked before turbocharging really became that much of a thing, right? So the W12 was sort of his instigation. What year would you say that that happened? That he peaked? Let, let me just, I, without looking at a calendar, let me just put it this way. There was a time, remember, when, when BMW tried a V16 to out 
do Mercedes, which is, was making a V12, right? This is in the late 80s. In the late 80s. 90s, the um, Goldfish. The Goldfish 7 Series, yeah. And the idea there was there was just a, as a limitation on the amount of power you could get out of a number of cylinders. BMW ran into that with the S54, the E46 M3, had 343 PS, 333 horsepower. And that was the absolute limit, according to BMW, because to get any more, what was this? To get any more power, they needed more bore. To get any more bore, they needed a longer block, which meant a longer crank, and then they couldn't rev it as high, right? So power is a function of displacement times rev, effectively. And there were torsional vibrations in the crankshaft that they just couldn't get around. So they had no choice but to then go to a V8, right? So that was the max of six cylinders. Turbocharging has fixed that problem. But so we were there. This was the era in which Piac was working when he said the, the Passat is getting a W8, and the... The, the Phaeton was getting a W12 and the Veyron was getting a W16. If you no longer need that many cylinders to make that much power, is there a suitable replacement? Remembering that in, through the world, the whole, the whole fucking Enzo speech from Paul Frere was that Enzo decided that a Ferrari had to be 12 cylinders, which I think is, I was very nice in the Dino revelations. I think this complete crock of shit. Enzo said a lot of shit he didn't mean. And that was one of those things because of course Enzo had been making four cylinders inline sixes, multiple different V6s, V8s, and whatever other straight eight. And straight eight. Every other layout you can come up with. He didn't give a shit about what what the layout was. But when the V8 Ferrari, well the Dino, the V6 came out, everyone's like, oh, it's not a Ferrari. It doesn't have a Ferrari badge on it because it's not a V12. Well now here we are with the 296 as a V6. And I gotta tell you, that engine is just as characterful uh, as the V8, probably more so. Than the naturally aspirated old V8. Are you the, talking about the 488 Then the 488 V8, the current V8, the um, turbo. So the turbo V6, the turbo 120 degree V6 from the current 296 is more characterful and sounds better than the turbocharged V8. Not a high bar, to be fair. <sighs> okay, spoken from someone who doesn't like flat plane V8s, sure. Well, which... Which of those would you choose, a 458 or a 488? I would choose a 360 or a 430. But yeah, I would always go, I would go with the naturally aspirated one because I, although Ferrari's engines have a really nice, the turbos are vocal. So there's that's another extra added dimension on the, on the V8 that I don't mind. I'm with you that flat plane V8s don't sound musical, but I do love them when they're flat out. It's just when you're not flat out and they're not wailing and screaming, they just... They can be awkward. A 360 Challenge Stradale has so many weird resonances down in the in three, 4,000 RPM range where you're driving and it just sounds like a dump truck and then it sounds like a UPS truck and then it sounds like, it sounds like all different shit and that's pretty cool. Um, but the new cars are too isolated. So my question though is, are you and I curmudgeon, curmudgeonly men stuck in the past where maybe it doesn't need to be a, a cylinder count? Maybe I it's mean, really about- I mean, who the hell knows what the customer who buys a Bugatti- actually cares about certainly not i well there's a there's a wait list for a 296 with a six cylinder and that's the that's the thing i will say there's always a wait list for a new ferrari talk to the ff owners club of america i think they there was no wait list they're for all that. dead <laughs> <laughs> no but I, i'm they're I'm, all curmudgeonly i'm trying to ask if the question is that we are wrong in our visceral negative reaction to the idea of a v8 powered uh bugatti because i mean yeah, the question is, do, is the public perception or is the buyer perception more important? I just think that the type of person who buys a Bugatti is interested in exclusivity. They're interested in differentness. They're diff interested in it's just, it's like nothing else. 
And to put the corporate V8 in, or Speculation, V8, obviously. We yes, have no idea. Speculatively. This is the whole premise of this episode is going to look absolutely terrible in four years when it comes out and it's a W18 <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> oh, they just dropped the, 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 the... I don't remember who the fuck it was that interviewed him. Just dropped the one by mistake. No, no, yeah. no. They said it was going to have a V18. Shit. Uh, whoopsies. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I think it should be more than a V8. Just on principle. Yeah. Even if that V8 is bespoke and doesn't share a single part with any other Volkswagen Group engine. That's better, but it doesn't really fix it. Hmm. This is the problem because there have been some magical V8s. You know, yes, BMWs. But those cars, BMW versus Bugatti. Okay, but BMW's cross-plane V8 with the crossover manifold that's in the X5M and M, that is, that's got quite the noise. It's so a it's a cross it doesn't matter. You could be the most magnificent. It could be a Cosworth DFV Formula One engine from the eighties, you know, seventies. It doesn't. That would be pretty cool. It just—it's still a V eight. So would a flat eight be okay? Be interesting. Would an inline eight be yes. okay? So eight cylinders are okay. Yes, so just what not a V, because it's too common. It's too poor. Oh my God. <laughs> You're going to get crucified here in the comments. I'm trying to help you out, Derek. No, it's just, I mean, that's what Bugatti's all about. It's about wealth, right? They always talk about yeah. how many private, like the average Veyron buyer had three private jets or something like that. Holy shit. The people who buy those cars need to have something that no one else has. It has to be extraordinary in every respect. And a V8 does not deliver that. I like V8s generally, depending on the circumstances. I just, it's not right for that identity that not not right yeah. for that brand they did you know make concept bugattis when bugatti was being reinvented during the vw era with 18 cylinders by the way yeah but like i don't know they need to do something really extraordinary that's the purpose of that brand that's I, the thing that differentiates it from remots you know well i think that was what px got a hundred percent correct with with the veyron was this wasn't just going to be an auger d'art it was go it was not just going to be a six cylinder a 16 cylinder car it was not just going to be the 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 fastest car ever made with the most horsepower and the whatever it did it all and it did it all in comfort and that was it it was just except for the ride quality yeah okay i mean that's the the, the veyron heard from that yes um but, and then I, that was a function of the tires, right? That was yeah. technology available at the time. The only way you could do 253 miles an hour, whatever the fuck it was, without the sidewalls blowing out was have sidewalls as stiff as concrete. Um, but he really did nail that mission. Yes. I mean, the joke is that it's a Volkswagen product and Volkswagen couldn't sell Phaetons because, you know, nobody's going to spend $80,000 on a Volkswagen to be stupid. And yet they spent... It was only a million when it launched. Yeah. I and mean, that's the yeah. funny thing. But, you know, now five five million dollars out the door, no one has a problem with it. Because well, it really it's not was badges of Volkswagen. Yeah, but everyone knows it's a Volkswagen. I mean, and but and no one has a problem with it because the, the piece spoke for itself. It really did mm -hmm. not share okay, there were uh, certainly parts shared with lesser Volkswagens, but you never saw or interacted like the with the mirror them. motors. You're gonna you're never gonna forget that, are you? Or the key. The key is a the letdown. The key was a little bit of a letdown. But the Chiron key is much better, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that that's true. Okay, so if we have to shit all over the Veyron. Do we? No. I'm going to say, if we had to, what did it get wrong? I mean, you think the styling is austere? I think that the, the whole car is austere. I think it, it, it should have had this arrestingly gorgeous character to the styling. And I think, you know, then this may have been a functional constraint about aerodynamics and getting the car to perform the way that it was supposed to. 
Uh, but it would have been nice if it had been rendered in a slightly more handsome fashion, I think. I think, I think that they did a good message. job. Yeah, they did a much better job with the Chiron in that respect mm. uh, than they did with the Veyron. Uh, you know, they <laughs> the joke is that they made at least three, maybe four versions of the same car at the same time, which is the New Beetle, the TT, and the Veyron, right? They all are <laughs> yeah, the same basic the same, shape. Yeah. They're just sort of drawn out more. Yeah. You know, in 911, if you want to throw it in yeah, there, I was too. Gonna, I was just going to say that. <laughs> would, would be the, the fourth one. So, right, it's which Beetle-shaped car do you want? Do you want the $20,000 one, the mm-hmm. $40,000 one, the $100,000 one, or the million-dollar yeah. one? Yeah. Um, but, so, so yes, I think that it could have been better in that respect, but, you know... I still think it's an incredible car to behold and to consider. I mean, we'll probably talk at length about the car more so than we are now when we do this sort of episode that may or may not ever, ever exist. happen. Yeah, well, I think we're doing no, part of it right now. We we are. That's true. But so you've driven all four variants of the Ver- no. I think okay. So Super Sport. <clears throat> that's it. Yes. Holy God, fucking Derek, out out bougieing me. So Super Sport non-Vitesse. So closed car. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's talk about this for a second because there were two Veyrons. There were yes. two very You talked about this in your uh, revelations. Exactly, but I'm going to talk about it now and I haven't done this research in 10 years, so I'm five it's years. Like four. Whatever, it's 100 years ago. I did this when the... I did all of this original research when I went on the press launch for the Super Sport. Yes, so you it was made the closed. Uh, Bicocky cry. Loris Bicocky cry. Um, uh, Loris is uh, the the man behind the chassis dynamics of the second gen. He was involved with the first gen, but the, the Germans didn't listen to him. So the first gen car was a thousand horsepower car. Uh, it was a carbon tub, obviously W sixteen. Um, the stories abound about you know the, the staff basically walking out on Piek when he gave them the list of requirements, which was you know a thousand PS, four hundred kilometers an hour, and four hundred three. 403 was the oh that's right because that's that was the highest the Peugeot went a highest speed ever recorded at Le Mans right mm-hmm. um, so yeah crazy crazy list of requirements a bunch of this uh, a bunch of the the team just walked because they thought it was not possible car was a huge technological uh, achievement from the powertrain complexity of a you know of a W16 which is stupid two VR8s um, to With four turbos <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's something it's easy to forget. Four turbos, um, a dual clutch, which was a novel kind of thing at the time, four wheel drive. Um, and the joke was that it was, you know, carbon tubbed and supposed to be unbelievably light and everyone shit on it because it weighed nearly 4,000 pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, what the engineers had said to me is if that car was one kilo lighter, it would have cracked in half under its own power. I mean, they just optimized the shit out of it. Um, 1,100 pounds of engine transmission. 1,600 16, 16, maybe 1100 is just the engine. It might just be just the engine. Yeah. I remember it being 1600 pounds for, for both again, been a lot of years, but the 1200 horsepower cars were actually a completely new car. And they, uh, when I say completely new, I mean, new tub, an entirely new tub. And when you're dealing with a carbon tubbed car, that is the single most important compo- component of it. Um, the engine was completely comprehensively re-engineered. Um, I mean, it has to be to get 20% more power. That's the joke is any any modern car, you could get twice as much power. I mean, go look at a BMW B58. You know, this BMW's current straight six, you can triple the output and it doesn't give a shit. Um, but the original thousand horsepower car was so pushed to the limit that they really needed to make a lot of changes. Um, and the, I had one conversation at that launch with one of the engineers and he just kept telling me all this cool stuff. I wish we had actually prepared for this episode. Mm. Um, because he was just telling me all this little trivia, like the first time that they accelerated full throttle in first gear, 
the ramp up in speed exploded the, I think it was the AC compressor or the alternator bearing, right? They had to, because the car accelerated that much more quickly through first gear than the previous one with only 20% more power. Um, they all the, literally every gear in the transmission was was redone for additional strength. I mean, they really went through and comprehensively re-engineered the car. The big change though, is from the driver's perspective where the first one feels like the world's fastest Audi with a jet pack on it. Uh, the 1200 horsepower cars, both closed and open. So those are the two variants. You have 1000 horsepower closed open, 1200 horsepower closed open. Uh, the 1200 horsepower cars feel like a Lotus Elise, feel like a very big Lotus Elise. Yeah. Um, beautifully communicative steering, um, no, nose tucks handling where, the, where the, it'll tuck right in rather than wash out. Yeah. And the back wants to play. And I noticed it immediately having driven the first two cars and then flying over to Europe to drive the third one. And I was like, oh my God, this is a different car. It feels like an Elise. And Lord, that was what made Loris cry. He yeah. was so proud that of his achievement. Yeah, this it was, genuinely feels athletic and sporting yeah. and keen and agile. It's a really marked, I guess, change. But I was very surprised by the character of the car, having read all of the things that I had about it, the Veyrons over the yeah. years. Because the original, the 1,000 horsepower car, what, they were competent, but they were competent in that perfect Audi Joyless. way. It's <laughs> a little harsh. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's that's the Audi way, I'm sorry to say. Competent, but not joyful um the second one was was night and day i would have an open car because the sound of those turbos is something i will never ever forget uh, it was one of and i hate turbos i hate turbos automatics and four-wheel drive and yet holy shit um but then the chiron was another comprehensive so effectively there have been three of those cars um and i don't believe there's been any substantive massive changes to chiron in the same way right I just don't pay attention to I, those cars. I can't anymore. There's too many fucking versions of them. I can't afford to. <laughs> ah, I can't even afford to read the books on them. Yeah. Um, but uh, the Chiron that I've driven was was very quick. I mean, I drove it in a straight line. Uh, that was for the filming of the, the Drag Race episode that we did. But the difference is immediate. You, as soon as you start the car, right? The 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 Chiron, uh, the Veyron, even the later one, you start it and there, it's there. You know, thundercloud looming in the distance where the current car is deafeningly loud on startup and in the right way, in the absolute mm. coolest way, all very deep boom. Uh, it sounds like something and then it responds to throttle and launch control in ways that the none of the Veyrons did. Um, it's a much more immediate quick driving experience and um, a, a hell of a piece. But I just can't imagine starting that thing up and, and instead of hearing that that it does yeah, you hear like sort of the urus noise <laughs> yeah, like an urus well we'll see we this is entirely speculative is this the bugatti episode i think we're i mean we're at 28 minutes so we're, we're halfway through this episode might as well just keep talking about bugatti do we have other things to say on this topic or are we going to transition um what do you know about bugatti uh nothing no no i mean i what it's there there are two well three companies effectively right. Right, there was the not, I I don't I would say I don't have enough research on this to talk credibly about the EB110. That was a pretty cool car. Yeah, it's a cool car. I just um, don't know enough about it to say anything. Have you driven substantive. one? Substantive? Nope. No. No. Finally, finally, an old car that I've driven. That was a really cool car because all right. So let's. Chapter one was Bugatti, right? And we'll we'll come back to that. Chapter three is obviously the Piac era, which is the Volkswagen era, and chapter four, I guess, will now be we're moving into that's the uh Rimats era but chapter two was a resurrection of a fully dead brand by a man named romano artioli 
and his name should sound familiar because he also resurrected Lotus. Lotus. Uh, and the Elise obviously was named after his granddaughter, Elisa, um, who I follow on Instagram and she's just super cool. She got the, I think she got the last Elise off the line um, or one of the last uh, Elise off the line. How cool is it that she was, you know, she's into the car and she was actually under wraps at the launch of the uh, debut of the series one Elise. Uh, she was like three years old and they hit her under the car and then when they pulled the wrap off, there's, this is Elise. And she had a, like a little thing on that said, I am Elise. Anyway, um, but uh, Artioli, did he remake that? Did he reopen their old plant? No, it was a new plant. It was a new plant. Italy. Okay, that's right. So Bugatti had been previously been in France. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he made a new plant in and Italy. And that was part of the piechiness of reinventing Bugatti when they did, was that they got the old ancestral home of Bugatti in France, in Molsheim, mm-hmm. uh, because the previous iteration of Bugatti, number two, was the one that was in Campo Galliano mm-hmm. in Italy. That's the name. I couldn't think of a second. No, Campo Galliano. It's a beautiful name to say. Um, but he resurrected Bugatti out of thin air and did sort of n- nothing the way it had been done. And that EB-110 was a Bugatti, a perfect Bugatti in the sense of its technology was completely batshit. So it was carbon and fiber. performance. Yeah, it was carbon fiber. It was an 8,000 or 8,500 RPM V12 with four turbos mm-hmm. and five valves per cylinder. Mm-hmm. Um, three and a half liters. Three and a half liter. Little time, same displacement as our Rover which makes almost as much as one-tenth of as many horsepower. Um, they are, they sound great. That is one hell of a uh, performance car. I drove one briefly, it broke. Um, I mean, the battery died and the alternator wasn't charging it. And so I died on the side of the road. Um, but up until that point, the turbo noises that that thing made, I wish these, this was pre-smartphone, so I don't have any video of it. Um, but holy this is the car that was that originally fast. designed by uh, Marcello Gandini, and then they didn't like that design, and they threw it out and started over again. So the, the original Mar- the Gandini design for that car looks quite different. It looks mm-hmm. more like a Chisetta, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, but mid-engine, think about, think about this of the time. Five-valve cylinder, four, so 60 valves mm-hmm. in a V12 with four turbochargers. Um the defining characteristic of the of the driving experience that I remember is the tumble home was so severe that the Kuntosh corner of the is just like that. It's worse. Kuntosh, I like yeah. I will brush my yeah. corner of my head I, on the top of yep. the door. This was the same sort of like, wow, you are really afraid of if any, like if you hit a curb <laughs> with the front left wheel, you're knocking yourself out. Um, but when I looked at the car, from a technological standpoint, I think it was really, really cool. But when I looked at it, it wasn't... Artioli didn't get the recipe right in the way that Piek did. Because when you start looking at stuff, it was all off-the-shelf supplier stuff. It was, mm-hmm. you know, I don't remember what the names they were. They couldn't but afford to do right. the VWA, right? That's the thing about the VW approaches. They have all this money. And it's a sort of maybe excessive to call it a vanity project. But, but it was. It was. It was a money-losing yeah. project, right? Yeah, yeah. And so they said we whatever it costs to do to do this, it's worth it to us and we're going to spend the money. And when you're in reinventing a brand and as a businessman, you know, as opposed to someone who is the head of a multi-billion dollar corporation, you have to do things differently. When you're, when you're nearing, well, post, you're way post retirement age, you've had the storied career that he has, which we'll get into at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, you just want to show the world that you're, he, that, that Veyron was a middle finger to literally everybody. Um, and the rest of the middle finger was the phaeton. Yeah, that's a fun, 
that's a fun fuck up. Um, that was that was his ego getting a little bit too big. But um, it is so piecky. It's piecky. Is yes. that a I didn't peculiar, realize could, peculiar. Peculiar. <laughs> peculent? That's the most peculiar. Peculent. That's halfway between peck and petulant. Yes. He was a peculent. Or truculent, which is also appropriate. Okay. Uh, I don't think I've ever heard that word before. Truculent, truculent. means like aggressive. How do you, is this in like some separate hyphen dictionary that no one else has access to? Um, but Break anyway, out the Google machine. I'm not going to do that. The uh, But yeah, the overwhelming feeling in a EB110 is you are in a Lamborghini made even more outrageous. But the only one that I drove was an SS. So it was not, it was the sort of sport package, not the luxury package. But, you know, it had diamond quilted what looks to, in my memory, like vinyl in the interior. Yeah, on the center console or on the tunnel transmission. Yeah, tunnel. it wasn't It wasn't a luxury experience. Well, yeah, the SS is more like that. You have the wheels that recall the vintage wheels and you have uh, wooden leather everywhere and carpet. I mean, that was a swankier interior in the SS. But was in, it in the GT? In the GT. But yes. was it really that? Was it Veyron levels of swanky? No, no, no. Of course no, not. Okay, right. So the, the car strikes me ultimately unbelievably cool. I mean, I, I really, I've tried to get one for Revelations and we can't find one. And Yeah, they built, built very few of them. It was a yeah. commercial failure for sure. Um, but a a different interpretation of, of what I think the Bugatti recipe was um, by by the by virtue of the fact that they use supplier parts, right? Mm-hmm. Suspension by other people. And who did the engine? I, I bet they did that in, in-house. Um, but I remember yeah. looking around and seeing different logos on, on stuff. And I was like, that's shocking to see that on a bugatti when you think like magnetti morelli or yeah yep uh when you know i'm sure there are definitely bosch parts or siemens parts in veyron's but i think they're better better hidden chapter one though is really fascinating fascinating because the bugatti was nuts yes i mean comprehensively uh, okay i'm glad to hear you say that because i was a little bit like when i said that maybe he wasn't actually nuts no, I mean, I think he, I don't know. I mean, like I said, I don't know if, uh, enough about the history of Bugatti. We're reaching the limits. And so to do a Bugatti episode right now is like, oh, I'm ill-prepared. Uh, I, like, yes, I like ill-prepared, Derek, because you're still going to spout out more shit than I know. And I feel like I'm moderately prepared. No, I got nothing. <laughs> uh, I mean, he is as much, I would say, like a lot of the guys of this era, he doesn't have any formal training, uh, not formally as an engineer. And he didn't... Uh, you know, this, he was as much driven by sort of like ego and vision. He chose who his customers were going to be. This was right. the thing that he was always famous for doing was that you couldn't just have money. You had to be sort of well-bred by his definition. And it, it was this is this ancestral homeland of Bugatti as this facility, this chateau in Molsheim. But he basically would invite these people over who were prospective customers for his cars and he would decide whether they were suitable or not to purchase his cars rather than just whether the distributors took money from that person. I love this. So, I mean, he solved the Enzo Ferrari problem in his own unique way. <laughs> right. He uh so he was born in Italy, right? Uh and which I th- yeah, I believe he referred to that as quote that accident, that unfortunate accident. I think so. Yeah. Um but but was comprehensively french in his cuntiness right i mean he was just not just going to make the best cars but he was going to make sure that the the owners of those cars represented him and his brand properly and this is something that i think has has some pretty strong merit i have Mm. to say i mean you know you have there are luxury brands right now that are really struggling with who buys their cars and the direction that they're 
forced into by the the temptation to sell more and more cars. Um, I mean, yeah, you, you that is. I think one of the most extraordinary achievements of the modern era is the way that we think of Porsche quite differently than how we think about Audi, BMW, BMW mm. Volkswagen, obviously, uh, Mercedes. There, is, Despite the fact that Porsche sells a large volume of cars, there's still a, a level of prestige and panache associated yeah. with it, despite the fact that they sell, you know, however many hundreds of thousands, three or four hundred thousand cars. A year, obviously, that's a different level of scale from the other manufacturers I just listed who mm-hmm. probably sell, I don't know, what is it, a million or two million cars a year for VW? Mm-hmm. Uh, not for More. VW, for uh, Mercedes and yep. BMW. Uh, and so, you know, Porsche still has this prestige uh, that they are able to achieve in spite of the volume of their cars. You know, Ferrari, on the other hand, sells, I don't know, 10, 15,000 10, yeah. cars a year. So Mercedes different level, you know, and BMW is a different level from Porsche, which is an or- another order of magnitude different from Ferrari. Yet mm-hmm. I would say in the minds of most people, if you're asking for prestige associations, you would say that Porsche is closer to Ferrari, I think, in terms of exclusivity and value of the brand. Uh, GT, a GT car, yes. So a 911 GT3, I think a lot yes. of people, like, I think if, you, people. if you're just a regular person, you're like, you're like, I drive a Porsche, and people are like, oh. Oh. It's yeah. a different reaction. Same way if you say, I drive a Maserati. Oh, yes, really? Yes, that's true. That, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, and that's a that's yeah. just a layperson perception mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. But I think, um, what am I saying here? Porsche effectively has done this in the modern era in a way that very few other manufacturers mm-hmm. have. Bugatti, back then, was doing it the old-fashioned way, which is that he would basically vet every single person yeah. Who came through the door? Yeah, there was one. That's the story I remember. I think it was a Romanian king or Romanian royalty that came and spent spent the night. So that would, the whole thing was a trap, right? Please come to the Bugatti Castle in Molsheim, and we will, you know, we will entertain you and, and wine show and you dine what we you are and show of. you what you're capable of doing. But what was really happening was Atore was looking at them and, and watching, saying no, and he refused to sell a car to this king because he had terrible table manners. Mm. Um, but I think there's really something to be said for that. I mean, you Do know, tell. What, well, look, I know that this, taking my opinions out of this, Cadillac is struggling because they're they're they will tell you as a luxury brand that their their flagship is absolutely not the Escalade, but it is right. I mean, that's the car that we all associate most with Cadillac, and that's being driven by Uber drivers. That's not good for a luxury brand, right? Um, when the financial collapse of 2009 happened, Rolls-Royce's sales were up or unchanged and Bentley was down uh, almost 100%. There was like 90 something percent. Down 100%? Down zero. zero. They sold almost zero cars. And the reason why was the people who were buying Rolls-Royce's were storied familial wealth and they immune. were old money and they were immune. It didn't matter what happened to the poor people who, oh, you lost your million dollar house. <laughs> Peasant. Um, whereas Is that Bentley's, still true for Rolls Royce? I feel like there's a lot of I nouveau riche. For, for um, but, so, but, but Bentley customers were struggling, right? These were people who were reaching and they were the working rich and they were an order of magnitude poorer than the Rolls Less Royce customers. Less wealthy. Um, or they weren't wealthy at all. They were yes. just rich. Yeah. And there's a, there's a, 
an annoying distinction between the two. And you watched what happened in that in that that economic recession. Now, after the recession, Bentley's sales boomed, and especially once the Bentayga happened and whatever else. But Bentley has now firmly cemented itself as an order of magnitude beneath Rolls Royce um, because of the product that has come out. Right. Yeah, However, the loss of the Mulsanne, I think, is an important. I mean, that was the last of the old guard Bentleys, right. in my opinion, which they couldn't sell, even though it was magnificent. Yeah. Um, but it was the the company's image was brought down. I hate to say, by the Continental and the fact that mm-hmm. some fifty year old dude. Well, who, that was the mission. Let's be fair. That of was Bentley. I mean, I think so. Volume, right? Volume. The, the goal is to expand volume. If you want to print money, you have to sell more cars. This is why Porsche started making SUVs. This is why Ferrari is making yeah. SUVs. This is why these you, yep. you were talking about, you know, more Urus sold than every other Lamborghini model combined. 50 years. For decades, yeah. So, mm. you know, that was by design to move down market. Everyone often tries to do this when you're trying to expand. Aston Martin did this right. with the... I guess the first time was with the DB7, but the V8 Vantage does the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you want to ma- build a viable, profitable brand instead of a storied one, uh, then you have or to Or you take the Pagani route or the Bugatti route and you make it truly spectacular and exclusive. And that has worked. Look at how old, look at how long Pagani. So Pagani has profitable? now outlasted the original, the original Bugatti, I'm certain. Right? I mean, think about it that way. Pagani's no, been around for a like long 19 time. 19 teens until the f- early 50s. Is it real? they really making any cars by the 1950s? No, I mean, they were basically didn't survive World War II. Right, but Pagani's been around for what, 25 years at this point? Yeah. I don't That's one hell of a success story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so going back to the, the Bentley thing, they really, they really struggled. Rolls-Royce, when I've talked to people who work at Rolls-Royce, their biggest challenge is their customers, trying to guide their customers to have a little bit more taste with their color choices, you know, so mm. they'll have these blue cars with yellow interiors. And, yeah, what and is Rolls-Royce, that? That's not a very old money thing to no, do. No, and it's that's, new money. Rolls-Royce is worried about that, right? This is this is the, the thing that a Tory Bugatti was clearly fighting against, was this person burps at the table, I mean... All right, I guess I wouldn't be qualified to buy, buy a Bugatti. Therefore, I don't want him in my car. I want people with taste. And the reason why is that Atori himself was an esthete. Everything around him had to be beautiful. And he was offended to the core as only an Italian-born Frenchman could be by things that were not beautiful. To the point where not only did he design <clears throat> the cars... And the engines themselves and the firewalls were, were all machine turned. Every every piece of those cars was beautiful. But the fucking buildings and all the tools were designed by him. Mm-hmm. Like that's where he goes from being like a, a guy with a vision like Ferdinand Pieck to fucking nuts. Mm-hmm. Every tool, he made the tools because they were not of sufficient quality and were not beautiful. So all the tools in the factory, he designed and built. And the silverware in the chateau he designed and built only could possibly be done by a French person or a friend, Italian. And so that's why the, the Pierre reinventment of Bugatti has, is a failure. No, I don't think it's a failure at all. They got close enough. He got close enough. But the utensils. <laughs> but this fork is not beautiful. It's from Ikea. I'm um, I think Pierre got 95% of no, the way there, right? I agree. Um, more so than... than than Artioli did. Yes. Artioli made a car that he was... He might have had that vision, but it was just, it's immensely expensive to do that. You have to be able to piss away many millions of dollars to do yeah. that. And Pierre was in a position to do that. Yeah, which is crazy. I mean, 
and it built a factory for the car, mm-hmm. right? But did not build, and I'm sure probably built the tools, but they were not all done with an aesthetic There's a more mind, Italian I'm sure. approach, I'm sure. Whose? Artioli? Artioli, yeah. yes. Um, the car is magnificent. I would love, I can't wait to drive, drive one again. Um, and I would love to tell that story, but, um, I'm interested also. I've never, not having never driven one. The, yeah, the, the, the difference between the Artioli era chapter two and the original Atoria era, honestly, there's, if there's one chapter of Bugatti that, that I don't. Discontinuous. That is, discontinuous. Right. So far it's two, right? It's the Artioli era. And I think four could be the same way. It's really we'll going to be interesting. We'll find out, but if it's yeah. well, supposed to be a V8, then yeah, that does if it's sound that like four liter, that, If it's the four-liter Audi V8, I So you've driven revolt. a pre-war GP car. Yeah. Wow. So I drove, I was on a Bugatti rally, um, and this was after Pebble Beach, uh, 10 years ago now. Um, <clears throat> and Peter Mullen, who's now sadly passed away, but uh, is, I believe, the largest or certainly one of the most prominent collectors of, of uh, Bugattis, just agreed to let a journalist drive the car. And so I wound up in the car with a guy named Julius Kruta, Julius Kruta, um, for the American pronunciation, who, as it turns out, lived about 10 doors down from me, or his girlfriend was 10 doors down from me when I was in high school in Germany. Um, So we're from sort of the same area. He was, at the time, Bugatti's historian absolute walking encyclopedia still in the, still in the in the bugatti sphere and just wrote the book on eb110 um that uh i was planning to use on research for one of these days if i can get a revelations uh car but uh i was in the car with julius and he was like okay well here's the way this shit works nothing synchronized this is just you know the rawest thing and i got in the car with him driving first and it's so narrow that i had to have your arm out i had to have my arm my right arm around him right hand drive i had to have my right arm around his shoulder or behind him and my left arm tucked in or it would hit the rear wheel yeah um so my immediate response immediate was was stress like we're gonna die in this fucking thing um and then you know we were it was mostly low speed at first 35 40 50 miles an hour um and we would go to these lunches where you know uh, peter mullen and his beautiful wife who was just the the most elegant thing i've ever seen in my life she had a headscarf and the sunglasses and she would just get into this 1930s car and just drive it like it was like it was you know fucking cullinan or something she's amazing um uh and julius knew every single person in every single car that's a fake that's a this that's a this whatever just absolutely amazing and that was the first time i'd ever been steeped in bugatti's history like stupid embarrassing little things like i didn't realize that the stand-up hood ornament was the thermometer um and so there was just a i guess it was mercury or whatever the red stuff was alcohol was alcohol thermometer and that was how you looked at the temperature of the car and it was at the top of the radiator um others there was an elephant there some of them had elephants oh, there, okay. an elephant hood ornament. But then not a temperature, but then a real temperature gauge or what? Those were the ones that had temperature gauges oh, okay. inside. Um, these were GP cars, right? These were yes. you know, Grand Prix cars. They were meant to be light. Um, but, you know, things like the oiling, the flow through oiling that I had never really been experiencing. With the cars. charging system, it's driven off of the drive shaft. The, the generator is under the seat and it's driven off of the drive shaft. So On it charges. Really early cars? Like 20s, late 20s. Oh, really? And so the car is charged by the drive shaft turning instead of the crank. So sitting turning. in traffic, so you're, it's, yes, that's your right. SOL. Um, but it's magneto ignition. It was um, it, the whole experience of starting and running and interacting with it and then driving. Did this one have a fuel pump or did you have to uh, we supply to the fuel pressure? Uh, we had to start the fuel pressure. We had to prime it and then it would. 
with the handle with the handle inside the car. But then I don't believe we ever had to do anything after that. Um, I just remember the shift linkage being like vague. So the shifter is outside the car. It's not in the car with you. The lever is the lever, but the shifter gate is inside the car. And the lever comes out through a little like yeah, the lever gator is, thing well, that you, goes through the body of the car. Your hand is outside. Yes, on the your right hand is outside right. of the car, but the base of the lever is inside of the car. And it was and it a passes through the body. Three speed or four speed, but it was reversed so that the, I think it was first, second, third, fourth. So it was you know first and third are to, towards the back of the car and fourth. It was a little bit backwards, but crash box no synchros um, wound up being very very communicative you knew really well when you fucking when you screwed up a gear change had to time everything perfectly um it was supercharged straight eight and it was genuinely holy shit fast yeah there were about 225 horsepower or something like that and probably weighed uh, 1800 pounds i don't know what the hell it was it was holy shit fast but then holy shit no brakes and so it had cable operated brakes and we did you when you push the brake pedal you can see through the corner of your eyes the brake the actual like look like bicycle cables mm-hmm. actuating the drums. Yeah, that's exactly what it looks like. Bicycle bicycle cables. And we did have one fall off a pulley uh, on this back road and it was a little hairy. Exciting. We got it stopped. Um, but this and the steering you went to last episode, we talked about vagueness. Okay. This was over the limit on vagueness because you could often do 180 degrees of steering input just to keep the car in, in a straight line. Suspension was obviously very primitive, mm-hmm. um, but it moved. I mean, mm-hmm. keeping up with traffic, absolutely no problem, which is amazing considering the car's almost 100 years old. Yeah. Um, but uh, overwhelming to all the experiences. And I spent, yes. we spent two or three days in it um, just motoring around. And um, all of that was, okay, the power and the noise was unbelievable. The fact that it destroyed all of my clothes and shoes by spraying oil all over, and it was kind of funny. But the, the, the lesson that I learned that I had not realized is spending so much time with this car, every single thing is a piece of jewelry. Yes, um, that is very, very true yeah. about that car. The cam covers, I rem- mm-hmm. you know, just remember Bugatti cam covers. If you guys ever get a chance to interact with one of these cars, just sit and look at the engine compartment mm-hmm. because the cam covers are sheet metal that sort of formed into the like into a box, very simple box, but every piece of metal in that thing is machine turned with a pattern on it. Mm-hmm. Um, the spark plug leads are gorgeous. The gauges are gorgeous. The pedals, all are, the mechanical, yeah, pedal. I was just gonna say inside of the car because there's no carpets or anything. Mm-hmm. So it's just all the mechanical stuff is on display yeah. inside of the car, and it's not visible. done right. You, you know, it's done by a guy who clearly well, went to the, the length of designing all the fucking tools for the car because they wanted them to be pretty. I yes. mean, it's all done to the level that you expect from from a lunatic like that. Yeah. Um, that's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, and it, I would say, let's see, what else at the other end of the spectrum? As far as pre-war Bugattis go, I would say the, the Type 57 is also incredibly iconic. That's basically the most developed road car that they made before the war. Uh, the early ones also have mechanical brakes, which is a lot for a car that size, but mm-hmm. they did introduce hydraulic brakes eventually. Those cars are everything that you would think of to go along with Peter Mullen's wife in terms of elegance mm-hmm. and sophistication and the quality of the finish. You open the engine compartment, it's the same experience in terms of like beauty and mm-hmm. visualness. Easier to drive. The, the engine noise of those cars, the inline eight, to me is sort of really up there. There is a combination of sort of mechanical noise and the exhaust, which is just absolutely unmatched. I mean, maybe an Alpha 8C. Uh, what I loved about it was it was, supercharged. it was filthy. 
Like the not only physically dirty, filthy inside the car as it's dumping oil on your feet, but the 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 sound was angry and yes. bitter and totally and completely out of character with how beautiful every piece of the car was. And yes. I loved that. Yeah. That's you know it's uh that to me is a one of the best sounding straight eights. It's Bugatti type fifty seven and Alpha eight C. Fifty seven uh, is it loud? It can be. It depends on the specific car, but they definitely can be. Yeah. The straight eight. Usually they the, are. In the Type 51C was very, very loud. Yeah. Um, and that, I loved it. I mean, I loved the whole experience of it, but I can't imagine mapping that into a car with an elegant, you know, coach built looking interior. Well, coach-built interior. Yeah. It, um, it somehow works. It's loud and it sounds great, but it's not offensive. Inside the car, I mean, it's pretty present also it really depends on the car some mm. of them are set up in a more aggressive way than others but uh you know because the they had the s which stands for i think which is lowered and so those ones look even more outrageous mm. because it has a very sort of uh high aspect ratio body because the chassis is lower the whole car is you know and these are the ones that are worth the big money are the s's and sc's C's for compressor supercharged but you could get them without superchargers also uh but yeah those cars uh, it's it also has this characteristic which i think is representative of how far cars went in that last 10 in those 10 years between the late 20s and the late 30s is that the car despite looking like a steamship uh is actually pretty easy to drive huh, if it really? has the hydraulic brakes yeah. uh and that's very different from the cars that they made in the late 20s early 30s like the the other um one that stands out to me is the t- type 29 which i drove which is a little four-cylinder mm-hmm. runabout type car it's not it doesn't look like a grand prix car at all i mean i have to have a runabout bugatti i mean uh, oh i meant that in the like style yeah. bodywork style right, um and it uh you know that was much less refined and usable as a car uh, than the Type 57, which is a car that is a long-distance continental tour type car, mm-hmm. but still with a very strong sporting character. I would like to drive one of the Breshas, one of the little four-cylinder cars, because they're really tiny. Yeah, um, they're really tiny, and I can't imagine what that they sound um, sound like in the car because they sound pretty spicy outside. Yeah, it'll be like a K car from the third from the twenties. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think. Yeah. I think. That, I was as you're talking about the interior of the 57 I can't help but think that Pagani's got to be the closest thing there is to a modern Bugatti off the shelf Mercedes engines notwithstanding yeah in terms of every piece being crafted but there's art. a sort of whimsicalness to and slightly frivolous character to Pagani's which Bugatti's do not possess Bugatti's hmm have this elegance and effortlessness. There's nothing effortless about a Pagani. It's trying so hard, and you can see that when you look mm, at it. True. A Bugatti is mm. not like that. A Bugatti is not trying hard. It just is beautiful. Well, it's French instead of more Italian slash South American, right? Yeah. True. Um, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Um, interesting. We company. should probably at some point do another episode on the early history of Bugatti because I just don't know enough about it, but I should educate myself. I just haven't had occasion to do that. You are, now that you've said that, that is a tax, tax write-off to buy those books. Okay. Uh, um, just like it's a tax write-off to buy a, I don't know, Phaeton? EB-110. EB-110. <laughs> I was going to say Phaeton instead, but you're aiming high. I'm aiming high. Okay. Um, this was a surprise discussion about Bugatti, started by a rumor or a statement from... Uh, Watch it all read. be true, and so the premise of this is, well, it doesn't matter. This lives briefly on I don't, the internet. I think, I, to sum up, I agree with you. I don't care where that V8 comes from, unless it's some outrageous 10,000 RPM, really bespoke thing. I am not, 
I'm not convinced that it's the right engine for Bugatti. Yeah. Um, and so you can do better Bugatti. It's not too late. Yep. Not that, you know, there's a lot of consumers here who are not that you or I are in the market. For, yes, exactly. For, and we are not qualified to comment on this in any way, shape or form. All right. This has been uh, the Carmudgeon show. Thanks for joining us. We'll join you next time with, I don't know, whatever we decide right before we record the episode. Or even while we're recording it. Yes, like we did today. <laughs>